Welcome to the Vancouver Tech Podcast. We're at episode 57. 57. Awesome. 57. I'm Alex Moxon. And I'm Drew O'Grizzik. Hey, Drew. Hey, How was your uh, week? Uh, my week was pretty good. Do you remember last week we talked a little bit about different text editors and you mentioned that VS Code was bloated? Mm -hmm. Your words, by the way. <laughs> so I thought, you know, is it really bloated? What's this all about? What's it like? And it, and it really, you know, I was thinking all week then why are you using it? If you feel that way, why don't you use something else? But the other thing that I did, because I really wanted to appreciate your opinion on it or your stance, mm -hmm. is I tried to use VS Code for a week. Okay. And I actually, like, believe it or not, really, really liked it. Really? Yeah, I was really surprised. It's awesome. I can't believe it. And so normally, maybe just a little bit of background about the editors that I use. I've used a bunch of different editors and IDEs as well in the past, mm -hmm. but typically I use Vim these days. And I think there, there are some really nice things about Vim. I, I think once you get used to the, the key bindings and shortcuts, then it can be pretty fast. You don't have to move your hands from the keyboard. That's one of the things. But the other thing is it's, I find something that I really like about it is you can set it up so that whether you're programming in Ruby or JavaScript or Go or whatever language, you have all the tools available that you regularly use. And I think the, another thing is, uh, at least with my setup, it's it's pretty light and it and so it kind of forces you to keep a lot of things in your head. Now I know Adam often says, oh, I, I use an IDE because I like refactoring. And I say it like that because I believe that you can refactor and should and would refactor without the use of an IDE. And in fact, the, the automated refactoring that's built into some of these tools is interesting and I think probably quite helpful, but I, I don't know if it's better than some potentially helpful suggestions. And so that wouldn't be something, or isn't something that I have in, in Vim and I'd really have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, it kind of pushes you to think a little bit more or, or think closer to your code. Having said that, with large code bases and when you are working with maybe legacy code or things that other people wrote that you don't necessarily understand right away or mm -hmm. where everything is, then there's some really great tools out there. And I'm sure actually there's probably plugins for Vim that would help you with those as well. Anyway, so VS Code, so I used that and I was really, really kind of pleasantly surprised with a lot of the things that it does have. I like some of the, the diff tools that are attached so you can see you know, what you're working on, what you've done and where you started from. And you can see that side by side with some nice color syntax. And I, I like that you have uh, a terminal built into it as well. So you can access, so I'm on Mac, so you can access things like you normally would without changing windows perhaps, which is one of the, the benefits I think of, of using Vim inside a terminal and not using like GVim, which would be a separate program that you'd have to open up. And then there were, of course, there were some downsides as well. One of the ones that I noticed was I didn't really like some of the ways that it handled things with Ruby. So for example, if I'm writing a method, it didn't have spacing kind of sorted out for me properly or, and I wasn't really sure why it didn't give me the end. Yeah. So anyway, and I came across a pretty interesting post, I think for finding 
keys, like the key bindings. It's called Visual Studio Code, Increasing Productivity via Key Binding Management from Hong Kiat. Oh. Uh, so we'll, yeah, we'll put, put, put it down below in the link section, but it, this was really cool. And yeah, I really liked it. And I think that there's a lot of other sort of powerful stuff in it. I think it's a nice intermediate sort of step between something very light like Vim and a fully featured IDE mm -hmm. that adds a lot of really nice stuff. And I think there's some great, great support for a lot of JavaScript based things. Okay. And interestingly enough, we talked a little bit about JetBrains IDEs last week as well. And I noticed I got an email for they're introducing a new one for yeah. Go. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I really don't like about JetBrains IDEs or IDEs, I guess, in general, is how you need a different one for different languages. So one for Ruby, one for Go, one for C Sharp, maybe. Well, I don't know if that's even uh, the case. Oh, yeah. There's one for C Sharp, one for Java. Uh, and so like hopping from one editor to another or IDE to another IDE to another IDE, whereas if you're using something light like Vim and you have all your plugins set up, you could just do everything in your, almost in your terminal. Hmm. Cool. Well, that's a really interesting perspective. I guess I should probably play around with it a little bit more, but what I wanted to try to do is stick to one protocol while I'm learning and then switch up tool sets and things like that. Yeah. I, I think there's like, it's interesting. There's a lot of different perspectives on things there are different opinions i think it's nice on the one hand to do a deep dive into a single thing mm -hmm. and on the other hand having something to compare that to can often really shed light on what you like or dislike or how much you understand about something and i think that i don't know i i don't know what the best way to do is but maybe when you get curious allow yourself to indulge in that curiosity and have some fun with it cool yeah all right good advice so how about you what did you uh what were you up to last week did you get any blogging done what sort of coding <laughs> stuff did you do i did so i spent i'm sticking to updating my blog every week and it's nice. actually good because it focuses me on what it is that i'm learning mm -hmm. so this week i spent some time working on some tutorials for javascript mm -hmm. i found a couple of really awesome tutorials one was really good it's very slow but it's awesome for beginners because it has really great context mm -hmm. so i'll uh, i'll link it in my blog it's six hours <laughs> and it could probably be four, four hours just because there's a lot of additional things in there, but it's pretty good. There's also another one that I'll link to that was a half hour, learn JavaScript in half an hour. And it was good to walk through after that six hour tutorial. So that sounds really great. What were they? What were the names of them? And what did you actually learn from them? Right. So the first one was JavaScript tutorial for absolute beginners by Bob Tabor. And I hope I'm spelling or pronouncing that right. That's via Kodak TV, and it's sponsored by Microsoft. So he's a really great teacher because he takes the time to walk you through, provides a lot of context about things. So it literally is for absolute beginners. If you have zero coding experience, that's definitely where I would start mm -hmm. because it provides a lot of uh, additional detail that I think a lot of the tutorials assume you would know. So mm -hmm. definitely start there if you're new to JavaScript. The other one I'll, I'll link to in my blog, I am actually just starting with that one. So I, I can't comment on how I like it, but I like the fact that it's a half hour tutorial. Very cool. Well, maybe <laughs> you can tell us in the new year when we have our next episode, yeah. which by the way, will be what, January 9th? January 9th. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. But I, I definitely appreciate what you're saying about beginner friendly versus not. And some things that I've found, some of the online 
tools. There's different ones. Team Treehouse, I don't know if you're familiar with them. No. But I thought a lot of their courses were, and like you said, you know, maybe this was six hours, it could have been four. I thought a lot of their courses went a little bit slower. They were a little bit slower paced, which was very, very beginner friendly. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely loved when I was learning brand new concepts. And I found it was, you know, it was at a pace that you could really kind of go with. Mm -hmm. Something like Codecademy, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. That's really nice. But at the same time, it's, I guess, fewer sort of mediums because you, you read something, you do it, you read something, you do it. It doesn't always sink in. Mm -hmm. I still think it's a very valuable tool and something worth doing. I feel like, you know, you have to go through things a few times. Sometimes you just don't understand the concept at all. And then it, it starts to sink in. And usually doing that through different different mediums can help. And then so Team Treehouse, I thought they have a presentation. They go through it a little bit more slowly. You can do things. I think I did their Ruby, JavaScript, jQuery, Photoshop, and, and then a couple other things. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was pretty fun. Awesome. Um, and then Code School. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Code School, mm -mm. but I think they're a little bit faster paced and they kind of this a similar type of thing with Team Treehouse, although faster paced, more geared toward somebody who has an understanding of the concepts, maybe in other languages, but is learning or picking up a new language mm -hmm. uh, or framework or whatever. So I think that was pretty good as well. I really recommend Code School's DevTools, which is a free, free course. Yeah, that goes over Chrome's DevTools. Okay. I think that was really amazing. But yeah, I I mean there's all sorts of there's all sorts of resources. And I noticed you said, you know, six hours as if that was a long time. Now to learn something, six hours is a very short time. Imagine taking a JavaScript course in a college. Right. You know, it would probably be, you know, a semester. Mm -hmm. And that would be much more than six hours. And you might have the same amount of learning. It's just I think a lot of times I don't know if you feel the same way, but I, I definitely do. Sometimes something might take me an incredible amount of time to learn mm -hmm. because I'm kind of learning, almost reinventing the wheel by learning it by my quote unquote by myself. Mm -hmm. Also, learn by myself or whatever I taught myself is not a term I, I particularly believe in. I don't think anybody teaches themselves anything. I think we we learn things through observation and you know sometimes trial and error and practice, but and discovery. Right, uh, learn by doing. Right. But anyway, so I think sometimes it can take an incredible amount of time. So maybe it took me six months to learn these concepts, but I could sit down with, with somebody for an hour or two and kind of teach them what I've learned. And then maybe they'll play around with it and then come back and have some questions and answers. But when within maybe a week or two, they're all caught up right. you know, with something that took six months originally to learn. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that sort of knowledge share or transfer is, is incredibly valuable. And I think a lot of the the meetups and things in our tech community are slash should be designed to do exactly that. And same thing with like a good workplace environment. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I, I think you really understand and have mastery of a subject when you can teach it to somebody in simple terms and really take about half an hour to an hour to fully explain something. Or if you can even explain something fairly complicated in a few sentences, then you know your stuff. Yeah, I think not not everything would fall into a few sentences. But no. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a very valid point that you're making. Sounds great. That's awesome. one of the things that we're thinking as well with we're going through a pretty interesting hiring phase at work. Right. So we are definitely still looking. We've hired on a few people. We're looking to hire on a few more. Kind of quite a big hiring spree at the moment, mm -hmm. particularly looking for people who have had a fair amount of experience. So they're, we kind of understand where we're at. We don't have really... PMs for each of our 
our projects or our products. And we don't necessarily have well-written, well-explained tickets. You can't just take a ticket and go. You've got to question it. You've got to kind of take ownership of it yourself. Mm -hmm. And so we understand that, you know, as a result, we need people who have experience dealing with legacy code dealing with complex code bases and are going to be able to take that initiative and build out the right features, make sure that the, the feature is the right feature, and maybe even question that and say, mm -hmm. you know, is this solving a problem that we have? Is this the right way to go about it and come up with uh, the proper implementation or a proper implementation? But anyway, so as a result, one of the things that we're realizing is as we onboard people, rather than say, hey, here's some, here's some really horrible and horribly outdated partial documentation somewhere. Good luck with that. See you in a week. And by <laughs> the way, make sure to update it, which mm -hmm. I think is just, you know, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like saying, welcome to your first day of work. Here's your seat. Ha ha ha. It's covered in tax. <laughs> you know? So instead of doing that, we're thinking, you know, let's give people, you know, maybe we'll assign multiple people to a ticket mm -hmm. and let's pair up, pair up with a few or a couple developers or at different times on different tickets and kind of learn different parts of the system while doing with somebody else who knows the system. Mm -hmm. Now, hopefully that would lead to some, maybe some debtor documentation. But at the same time, I don't think that, you know, I don't personally, and maybe other people agree or disagree, I don't personally think that, you know, here, read some docs and, and catch up is the best onboarding experience. It's definitely not. In fact, for me, that's one of the worst ones because mm -hmm. you don't have the context of what what's important to the company. Mm -hmm. And maybe you're reading through something and I uh, spent, you know, an hour on it and somebody goes, oh, we actually don't do that anymore. So don't worry about that section. Yeah. And then you feel kind of foolish because you spent all this time learning that. So mm -hmm. it's nice when you've got a guided walk, uh, walk through, even if it's just a day, like somebody shadowing you, being like a work buddy and just walking you through things, kind of helping you along. That mm -hmm. really helps a lot. Yeah. I, and I think that like pairing up with someone and, and like actually walking through real tickets and build, or building out features really helps you to see a few things. One, it helps you to see where things are, how the system's done, but it also helps you to see sort of the mentality and the, the style of development of the people you're working with mm -hmm. and sort of the practices that they do. So if one person is doing something one way, another person doing it completely differently, that also gives you a sense of, you know, what's going on, maybe some areas that you could focus on to improve the company and, and help build its culture mm -hmm. if you're if you're so inclined. Yeah, I think that's good. Uh, the more ownership that you give people, the better. Um, the more they're going to want to come to work and want to contribute. And I think that's a really good thing. Awesome. So getting to the meetups and things like that, is mm -hmm. there anything you're excited about this week? Or did you go to anything last week that was awesome? And is there anything this week that you're excited about? Well, I didn't go to anything last week. It was more of a social week and more of a learning week. We had our company Christmas party on, on Wednesday, which was a lot of fun. Very cool. Yeah, a lot of Christmas parties these yeah. past couple of weeks and Definitely. this week, I'm sure, as well. Definitely. So on Tuesday, VPC Startup 101 at Spring sounds kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So I might check that one out. So what's that all about? So, so that... that's a Vancouver Tech or Vancouver Pixel Crafters meetup. Yes. And what is it? So it's all about starting a company. And it says here, most entrepreneurs make similar mistakes, execute on common assumptions, and jump to doing it all without getting the right support. It says where? So this is on the meetup page, if you go to the meetup page. And it, it basically, what you'll learn about common mistakes that entrepreneurs make, roadmap for identifying problem solution fit, product market fit, and scaling. So it's a, it looks like it's a really good guided tour to if you are at the beginning stages of either wanting to be an entrepreneur or you've just started out, this might be something interesting to check out. Great. So business-minded people, maybe check that out. Yep. Yeah, interesting. The only thing I went to, which isn't an only, it was pretty awesome. I went to CodeCore's Demo Day. 
Oh, fun. Uh, that was really cool. They cool. had some pretty amazing demos. I thought it was a lot of fun. Each code, whenever I see a demo day from uh, any of the boot camps, I'm always really impressed at some of the creativity and imagination and the projects that they're working on. Very cool stuff. And then this upcoming week, I'm not sure if I'm going to really make it out to anything, but if I do, there has been one meetup I've been thinking about going to that I haven't, and that is the closure meetup. And one of the people, this was interesting. I saw somebody post in YVR dev chat that, you know, they're there every week and they're ready to help people get set up and get started with it. So that sounds like a really cool, a cool group of people that I would love to spend some time with. So I might make an effort to make it out to that if I have time and can get off of Granville Island in time for it. <laughs> it's all about getting off the rock. Yeah. And okay. I guess that that's it for this week in Vancouver Tech. All right. Welcome back to Vancouver Tech Podcast, where we've got our special guest, Reza Sanayi from Beanworks. Hello. Hi, Reza. Thanks for joining us. Really excited to have you. Yeah, super excited to be here to actually join the local Vancouver podcast. Super excited to be here. Thanks. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about your company and what it is that you do at Beanworks. So Beanworks is an account payable and payments automation system. So we help companies pay their invoices, essentially approve their invoices and pay them as quickly as possible. So the problem that happens right now in the industry, like companies have, usually companies like our sweet spot is companies that have 100 invoices or more. Mm -hmm. So what happens is these invoices come into the companies in a, in a, in a paper world. Someone, some AP clerk opens it, runs around the office, gets approval on those invoices, and after that manually enters into the accounting software. Most of the accounting softwares are old and really hard to actually work with. Mm -hmm. So what we do, we bring in these invoices, we digit, digitize them, capture the data on it, and put it through approval workflow. Mm -hmm. So what the approval workflow looks like is Companies have these various rules on how an invoice should get approved before it could get paid, before the money leaves the company. So if it's for this department, Mike, Joe, and Bob need to approve it. If it's for this other department, Jack, Jill, and their, their boss, whatever the name is, has to approve it. And sometimes invoices could come in, like let's say you order 10 laptops from Dell, three of them are for marketing, four of them are for finance, and a bunch of the rest are for engineering. So like you can see quickly the approval process for this invoice could grow and let's say 10 people need to give their approval on it. Mm -hmm. So poor AP clerk has to run around the office, get signatures. And once, you know, once people have received their goods and services, they're like, yeah, I'll get to the invoice later. They just have to sign it and they just don't have time for it. Mm -hmm. So invoices get lost, delayed, don't get paid at all or even get double paid because, because of the manual process involved in this. And that's if everyone's in one office. So not a lot, lot of people work from home, work in different cities. It just adds more complexity and delay to this process. Mm -hmm. So we digitize all the invoices that come into approval workflow and they get approved and automatically go into the accounting software. And then the whole, the same process happens for each payments of those invoices. So people, accounting people write check and then they have to run around CFO and CEO and get, um, get their the check signers to actually sign the check. So you see like CEOs or CFOs spend three hours on Fridays actually signing checks. All they, all they do. There's so many, I think, kind of old arcane processes in place in, in business everywhere that just a little bit of automation or a lot sometimes really seems to make so much sense. And I think this is one of those areas. And so in, in your case, Reza, you're a co-founder and director of engineering. So there's a lot we have to talk about, like 
you know, maybe some of the tech choices, how the idea came up, how the company was founded. But one thing that's really on my mind that I'd like to start with is why the name Beanworks? Where did that come from? Good question, because a lot of people actually, unless you're an accountant, you wouldn't know what bean comes from, right? Right. So account, accounting, they call accountants bean counters. Ah, Something you might not have known. I, I wouldn't have, I didn't know before I joined this company. So we are actually a restartup. There was a company in 2008 that started, and I think they were a little too early for their time. Mm-hmm. And they, they failed and the investor pulled the plug on it in 2011. But they had like a prototype software and a bunch of customers on it. And essentially they pulled the plug, shut this, lay everybody off, sh- want to shut down the servers. And then the customers are like, you, you guys just can't go away. We need you. We're like, we're actually like, you convinced us to use the software and we're using it. Now you're just going away and we got rid of all of our paper process. And we like, come on, give us an option. That sounds really interesting. So there was a product that existed with customers. And the investors were like, eh, we're just going to, we're going to pull the plug. <laughs> yeah. And the customers needed this product. Yeah. So actually it's, so one of our major customers actually cut checks to reinvest into the new company. So that's what happened. A couple of employees from the old company, Catherine Dahl, who was a head of sales or GM, I can't remember what her title was. She was talking, to, she essentially grouped like a bunch of these customers, like, like they said, we could keep the software going and rebuild it, but we need money. So some of the customers actually start writing checks. Like we give you invest this much money, so keep the soft, keep the lights on, and rebuild the software. And that's when I joined. So we rebuilt the application from scratch. So we had the we had a product market fit, and it was just an ideal situation to re- rebuild it from scratch. Very cool. So there's definitely going to be some technology choices that I'd love to talk to you about. I think we mentioned uh, Gen Two Linux at one point, <laughs> but I did just remember. Now we met each other probably about a year, year and a half ago at a Docker meetup. And I think somebody was talking about the onboarding process and automating it using some dash scripts and things like that. So you have a lot of a lot of experience. I haven't seen you come back to the Docker meetup, but I guess everything's Dockerized. Yeah, I actually do run the Docker meetup. I've oh, just been do. too, too busy <laughs> <laughs> setting up the the talk. And like at the beginning, there was a lot. Like obviously, there was a lot of hype. Everyone wanted to learn about it. Everyone mm-hmm. like. People would keep reaching out to me like, I want to give a talk. I want to talk. I want to talk about this thing, this Docker thing that we were doing. So I would just set up the meetup. But unfortunately, like I, have, I haven't had a chance to set up like any more meetups. Like there are like Docker birthdays that are globally and like sponsored by actual Docker company. But from in our company, our dev environment is Dockerized. So before we moved to Docker, actually, it would take a developer like probably like a week or two, especially if they had no idea what our stack was. To install all the components, all the microservices, uh, all the all the various services that we we have, it would take them a week or two to set up their environment to become productive, which was ridiculous. But as soon as Docker became available on uh, various operating systems, especially Mac, because we have a bunch of people who also use Macs, essentially we wrote these scripts and programs based on Docker Compose that would get you up and running within ten minutes with all the comp- all the servers and all the framework that we have with the code pushed in and you could get the application running in your laptop in 10 minutes. Very nice. Basically just a Docker compose up and you're ready to go. Yeah, we have, we have like one of our developers, brilliant guy wrote, uh, which was one of the topics of the meetup that we had was Docker compose manager. Mm -hmm. Essentially, I think it used to be called fig like Docker compose back in the days. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So they, he wrote like a wrapper on Docker compose manager and like using command line, you could actually bring up components and down and 
build it. It's like it built a better API for Docker Compose, right? Docker Compose. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I think that was around the time when yeah, Fig was kind of getting deprecated. Yeah. I think they got acquired. Like, did Docker acquire Fig or something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure that, that might happen. And became uh, Docker Compose. Right. And now, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of interesting changes with Docker, and we'd love to see some more meetups there. And, For sure. And actually, maybe that's something we can talk about offline, but having getting up and running with Docker or some sort of interesting, maybe more advanced Docker workshop style thing that we could maybe do in conjunction with the Vancouver Tech Meetup. Most definitely, fun. yeah, for sure. Okay, so let's go back to Beanworks. Now we know why it was called Beanworks and we know how it got started, but tell us a little bit more other than Docker about some of the design choices or some of the, the technology choices. What's the stack? What sort of stuff do you work on on a day-to-day -day basis? As a director of engineering, what sort of input did you have into this? And then you also said, you know, we rewrote things from scratch. What was that process like? So that's a ton of questions all at once. Sure. Um, okay, so let's start with the last one because it's in my head. <laughs> so we re the reason that the like the old company died because the application was just not scalable, and it would take quite a bit of time to onboard customers, and you just couldn't move rapidly enough. So that was like one of the main things that we had in mind to be able to rapidly bring on customers. What was the uh, tech stack like at that time? At that time, it was just pure uh, PHP and JavaScript, no framework at all for NFM, just actual include files. Sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so back in 2012, when we started, NTR application was the microservices had not like become that hyped up about it, but NTR application was the, the shiz. <laughs> so yeah, that's how we architecture our, our system. And because of a couple of developers from the old company that were there, I asked them, what is your preferred language? They wanted to keep the same stock. So we kept our ongoing, but on a, like we are using Symfony to framework on the backend and Backbone.js on the front end. But so what, are, what are some of the, I guess, benefits of using Symfony, Symfony 2? Yes. I've heard a lot of hype around Laravel in the in the PHP world, but maybe that's because Laravel aims to be a very Rails-like framework. What about Symfony? Same thing, same thing. Laravel is a is a scaled-down version of Symfony, actually. So it's very very Rails-like, service-oriented architecture. Yeah, like your controllers, your entities, your ORMs. It's it's very similar to to Laravel. So okay, very cool. So very MVC, I guess. What sort of ORM are you it, using? Yeah, we're using Doctrine ORM that comes with it. It's like ORMs are like same thing with uh, frameworks. You they get you up and running really cool, and you love it, and you love it until like you have your application running, and you want it to do this one thing that doesn't let you, and that's when you start hating it. Mm -hmm. So just like with any other framework, <laughs> right. like ah, oh. yeah, yeah. That's I guess that's really the trade off. It gets you to a certain point really quickly, and then you kind of regret having to get to that point quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Like, oh, I hate you. Why don't you let me do this little tiny query? Which... Well, I guess that's actually one of, the, one of the great benefits of microservices and maybe one of the reasons why there is a lot of hype around it is I think it allows you to start treating sort of older design choices or decisions in tech as legacy code and start to pull things out of that more modular and experiment maybe with, with different things in a much more contained environment. So sure. let's say, you know, oh, you know, maybe we still want to do PHP, but we don't want to do a framework. So we want to build out what, a, what we think a microservice would look like in PHP. 
or maybe we want to take this to the next level. Maybe concurrency is an issue for us and Go might solve a lot of our problems. So we want to try that out. Is that something that's been on your roadmap or something that you've done? Uh, it's partially yes and no. And so far we haven't hit any scalability issues with our, with our stack, but I'm sure as we onboard uh, more and more customers, which is going to happen in the, uh, we just signed a huge partnership deal. Nice, uh, congratulations. Thank you. Which, can you talk about that? Yeah, I can talk about it now. So it's been in the making for a long time. So, <laughs> so which is we became the AP automation, exclusive AP automation partner of Sage Accounting. I don't know nice. if you guys know about us. Yeah, of course. Well, we know about Sage Accounting because everybody does, I think. Yeah. yeah. So essentially, they're going to bring on their customers on our AP automation platform in conjunction with Sage actually products. And they have probably, they, they want to bring over like about like, I can't talk about numbers, but our customer base is going to grow by a hundred times. Well, it's in pretty the much, three years. The, as far as I know, anyway, the biggest player in that field, isn't it, Sage? Yeah, yeah, they're one of the top top accounting software for mid-sized businesses. Very, very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, it's super exciting. So yeah, as I was saying, like in the next couple, in the next year, mm-hmm. or so in 2017, as we go on, we're gonna hit those uh, ceilings, scalability issues, maybe. scalability issues, and we're definitely gonna look into some microservices architecture. It seems like there's a lot of ways, like more and more, to deal with scalability issues. You know, scale up your infrastructure, you throw more servers at it. You know, I've heard of I've heard of some cases where they have, you know, certain apps or certain parts of their other some of their services that have maybe memory issues. So a way to deal with that would be kill a server and, and pull up another one. And that I mean it's more of a hack, but it works. And there's there's more and more things that we can do. So what are the some of the things that you're looking at? You've mentioned microservices quite a few times. What are some of the things you're looking at going forward? And I think you also touched upon using Docker in your dev environment, but not, I guess, I assume that not is not in production. No. So is that something you've thought about? Of course. Yeah. From day one, <laughs> <laughs> because that was the, that was the ideal dream to have the same dev production environment and Docker allowed you to do that. Right. But I still don't, I know a lot of people are running in production, a lot of like good stories, but then there's also a lot of horror stories too mm-hmm. with Docker in production. So. I'm still hesitant in rolling it out in production. I would never put my databases in a container. I would run it as a standalone server. But the application piece would definitely make sense to run it in container. But, and yeah, maybe it's 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 definitely in our mind to actually do it. But it's just working. It's working fantastic in the dev environment. Yeah, I guess there's not really many times where it makes sense to rewrite or even re-architect your system if you have something that's working. Yeah, unless you hit those scalability issues. Right. <laughs> or or there's a pain in your neck that you just try to get this thing done. It's 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 a lengthy process. So let me like roll out your new release or roll back. And that's when it actually bubbles up and it actually becomes a pro- uh, something in your priority list to re-architecture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what's the process like? Let's say you're a dev, you're working on something at Beanworks. You finish a feature. I'm imagining you're probably using Git or at least some sort of uh, reasoning yeah. tool, and push that pull request process, maybe peer review, and it gets merged into an integration branch. Or yeah, so we have had many many iterations on our process, and uh-huh. we we are pretty agile with it and our process. And 
I empower the developers of my team that if something's not working out for them, just bring it up. And especially in our Friday retros over beer, discuss what didn't work and get everybody's input on how to rework it so that everyone's happy and this is that problem, like try to solve that problem. So pretty much we have like iterations on it every month on our dev process. But I can't remember where we came from, but I know where we are right now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's essentially, we have a development process, a story, we use Jira, all the features get written out with all the specs, mm-hmm. with acceptance criteria. We have a kickoff for the story uh, with the product manager, with the PM, a couple, a couple of developers. We do, we do a lot of pair programming in our, in our office. Right. So, so just to get sidetracked a little bit, when it comes to pair programming, there's Definitely, I guess, some issues around that with shared developer environments and things like that, or tools, sets of tools. How do you combat that? With people working from home? Well, maybe people working from home or preferred text editors versus IDEs or you know, Linux users, Windows users, Mac users. Right. I, I, I'm a big promoter of conformity. Mm-hmm. So we try to do pair programming is your first question. But we have one remote developer. Mm-hmm. It's not as smooth as two people sitting next to each other. Mm-hmm. So we... We some like we do it on a need to on a need to have basis, but all of our developers are using Linux and either Vim or PHP Storm. They're both comfortable in both, so they have they, they essentially have yeah same IDE, same environment. So it's the same machine, right? So after after pushing for it for a little bit, everyone becomes conform and <laughs> and they like it. And I know there was some pushback from people like they wanted to they didn't want to use Vim or they just wanted to use sublime text which is a great idea but like a couple of developers join and they love them and they just promoted it and everyone started using them and now and now everyone's like going to php storm and i'm totally cool with it whatever works for everyone as long as everyone on everyone's I, i'm a big fan of conformity yeah i'm a, i'm a big fan of of getting out of your comfort zone from time to time <laughs> and so if i joined a company and they said you know what you have to you have to try and use this tool that you've never used before i'd be super happy at least for a while until I learned it. And then I might feel like, oh, I want to learn something else. But I really like, sometimes I need to be pushed as well. Yeah. But I really like that. And I think that learning new things gives us a good perspective on what we know and helps us to just really expand our knowledge. Yeah. And that's what engineers love, right? Yeah. To try new things. I know like people who joined our company are like, oh, my previous company, I was just doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, and my boss didn't allow me to try this new thing. Right. So, right. We're pretty open with that, and obviously, if if it's not working for them, we try to find out why it's not working, and essentially in a retro get together, mm-hmm. and everyone collectively agree on something. But what I don't like is two people diverging in two different directions and not trying to work with each other. Right. Yeah, because I guess it's going down different roads without any sort of knowledge share and not really benefiting each other. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is Beanworks currently hiring? And if so, what kind of, uh, or even if not, what type of engineers do you look for or what sort of traits do you look for in people? Yeah, we are currently hiring for both senior and junior developers. What I look for is mostly like character and attitude. What I'm looking for is someone for character and someone who actually can adapt well to the team and company culture. And is, as as we talked about, open to learning and trying new things. And if something's not working out, be vocal about it and try to make a change so technology wise we're a polyglot shop we have as i mentioned i mentioned we have php and javascript but we also have python we have some golang we have dotnet c sharp.net we are actually introducing db.net because we're not 
we don't want to introduce a new stack, but <laughs> we are inheriting this other software that we just acquired the IP to. So we have to maintain it, which is in VB.net. Hopefully it's not. We're going to get the code in Monday. <laughs> <laughs> so we're adding one more tech, uh, one more language or stack. We have some Java as well. So language is not really important to, to us. Language, programming language is just a tool, right? Right. We are really focused on delivering product, quality product, and delivering value to the clients. And doesn't matter how, what you use to get there. So that's actually, it brings up an interesting point because I find that there's a lot of uh, quote unquote polyglot shops, I think. And there's definitely some really good benefits to that. And, and I think you, you kind of start to look at, at languages exactly like you said, as, as tools, which I totally believe they should be. But I find there, there's a little bit of a trade-off as well in that you might have somebody who's specializing in a particular language or a framework. And I think especially something like Ruby on Rails, where it's a very opinionated framework, and it has a lot of sort of nuances and you know, idiomatic Rails, like the Rails way, where when you when you're coming more from a, I think a polyglot approach, you're maybe not caring as much about that. And we mentioned before about like ORMs, when you start to get to an, uh, a point where you want to do something maybe a little bit complex that, you know, if you, if you follow the rails way, it's just going to, it's going to be crazy. And it's going to take 10 minutes where you could just write a one-liner in SQL and it's, it's like instantaneous almost. Yeah. So I wonder like, what is, what is the benefit? What is the disadvantage? Now, if you're writing, as a polyglot programmer, not necessarily following the conventions in that in that framework or in that language, do you end up with code that's easy to read, easy to reason about, or do you then require having that polyglot mindset? Well, as I mentioned, we're polyglot, and if someone's want to bring in, if they if they're trying to bring a new stack into the code, they have to have better reason for it. Right. I try to keep it to a minimum, but then sometimes it just makes more sense to do it this way, this other language, and couple of benefits one actually more benefits one is actually makes more sense to do it in that in that language the developer gets to experiment with the language and that's what engineers like and once they have that experience they might might make more sense to bring more like more future code in that language if it works well right right it's mostly about experimenting and learning as well and i guess inheriting projects that are already in a language it, if they if they work it often doesn't make sense to rewrite them in a different language Yes. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Except for maybe just for fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have a lot of like, yeah, you're completely right. It doesn't make sense to write projects. But for example, I have a scenario where we have these integration utilities that sync their customers' accounting data with their ERP. And the ERPs are mostly like either SQL server backed or um, some weird database that's running on Windows. So we have these integration utilities that people install on their Data accounting server, right? Mm -hmm, right? If it's QuickBooks, if it's simply accounting, or if it's like much upgrade planes, um, Yardy. So what we do, we have like one of these, as I mentioned before, this VB.net application that mm -hmm. we inherited is is the integration utility for much upgrade planes. But our everything, every other utility that we have is in CSharp.net. So right. we are going to maintain this, and as at the, the moment we have the time, we're going to bring the functionality over to our main code base on CSharp.net to have the same look and feel for our application and we need to add auto updates to it too. So we just want to add it in one place rather than maintaining two applications, just kill that branch. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, I wonder like with that sort of decision, I guess you're faced with the question of, is it is it more beneficial? Because you're gonna to have to understand the code base and you're gonna to have to go through it. Is it is it better to just 
kind of port that over and rewrite it in something that everyone's more familiar with? Or is it better to treat it as sort of a black box and when we need to add features or add things, pull those things out into maybe our, our core app or into microservices? And how do you come up with, uh, how do you make that decision? It's mostly where you're at in your, the company, like how, how heavy the load is on the dev team at the time, right? Mm-hmm. So if if it's a little bit more relaxed, like yeah, so the, like like this week is a good time to refactor, bring that application over and port it into our main code base, right? Mm-hmm. Specifically of, this week because everyone's on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, we we use like yeah, like because the load goes up and down, right? High loads I believe is not sustainable. So a lot of our developers, our developers are actually excited to do this transfer trans translate transformation of this old app into new app right absolutely so it's yeah. like it's like giving a bonus like all right go uh-huh. ahead and do it right and like yeah i'd love to do it right like they have that kind of attitude so it mostly depends on the load of the sprint that we're on as well as you just do like a cost benefit analysis like this old code base it takes us it's really hard to add this feature to it because we don't have the technical, uh, we don't have the knowledge of that code, or it's just written in a clunky way. So we're better off like spending three weeks rewriting the application than spend one week every time we need to add a new feature to it, right? Something that could be added in a day or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, I guess that that definitely adds up over time. Yeah, uh, and you've got to look at you know how long is it going to take to rewrite this. But at the on the other hand, there's an argument to be made for if something works and it's gone through. It had a particular amount of time that it was out there. It's gone through a, a number of bug fixes, has things that, that are working. You're only going to be able to look at that and understand parts of the feature set that you pull over, but you're still going to have to have those bugs again and kind of those fixes. So a rewrite's often much, much uh, bigger of a thing than you might imagine. Well, yeah. Well, you better understand the entire thing. <laughs> if you don't know what part of what piece of code does, it's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> so m- maybe this is a good a good chance to actually learn the entire system as for when you're porting it over. <laughs> maybe. All right. So you, what's your what's your preferred development in I guess platform? What do you work on? Do you work on Windows? Do you work on Linux? On Mac? I work on I work on a Ubuntu machine. Ubuntu, cool. yeah. So last December, I actually, I was using an, I was using Windows mm-hmm. and like I had a virtual VM, like a Ubuntu VM to do like whatever I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I just took a plunge and just went hundred percent Ubuntu, and it worked really great because mm-hmm. I was like just sick and tired of Windows updates. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they tried to update at the worst time. You're trying to get on a WebEx call or. <laughs> just trying to update and it's just not winning. So I was just done with it. So, and as I was mentioning before, it, it's, it's been working really great. Like any, any, any device that you plug into it, it just works. Mm-hmm. It picks up printers, like printers just work out of the box. I was like blown away by how, how well, how far the operating system has gone. I think, yeah, like Ubuntu has been amazing for Linux and for spreading it. I think uh, as has a lot of other things like Android, uh, I think as well, but I can remember a time when I was first kind of getting into Linux and I had, uh, I was living in Korea at the time. And so I, I got a, uh, a 30 inch monitor. This is back in, I think it, I want to say 2006, some, some, somewhere around there. So a 30 inch, a 30 inch monitor at the time was huge. I guess it's still pretty big, but it was from a local company. It was using the same, the same panel as was in the Apple cinema displays, but it was completely different, a, a different logic board and whatever and so 
the drivers and everything for that just weren't recognized properly. Well, really what wasn't recognized properly was the, the native display, the resolution. Yeah. And so I think it was 2560 by 1600, which was pretty, pretty awesome. But when I ran Windows, I'd have to uncheck the hide modes that this monitor doesn't display. And when I ran Ubuntu, I can't remember which version it was at the time, but this is, you know, again, like 2006, 2007, I was only able to get like half of that. So half of the resolution. So it's like oh. 1240 <laughs> by, yeah. That um, sucks. By 800. And it, it did. It totally sucked. And so I hopped on, I think it was linuxquestions.org or Linux forum or something like that. And I, I started posting stuff and there was some, there's this guy in the UK that was helping me like troubleshoot all these things. And I'd open up conf.zorg or so was these crazy sort of like X files, I guess, not the X files, but <laughs> X <laughs> witness yes, files I've seen them. Uh, and <laughs> kind of going through, it was just so many hoops. And we had, I think about like 15 pages in a forum of, troubleshooting and i learned so much i know but, but i didn't get it for to work. sure that's the thing like that that that's totally my experience right. as well like back in 99 2000 yeah. you want to install like a sound card on your motherboard right. and you just have to like like crawl the web for the driver and you yeah. find it once you find the driver you have to like you have to compile this four other applications in oh. c and you have to go learn c and figure <laughs> out like how gcc works and then you have to go download gcc because you're offering <laughs> so and then you have to keep like branching out into like oh i want to i want to install this application it has these three other dependencies there were no package manager okay. back then so these three dependencies and for each of them they have like two other dependencies each and you just keep like crawling like downloading all this stuff off the web and it would take you 10 hours mm -hmm. and you still can't get your main application installed. but now you just do an app get and just boom everything's there well that was the thing i eventually resolved the issue three or four years later by waiting <laughs> <laughs> played the waiting game yeah and then Ubuntu caught up and and it's it's just amazing now it is it's like you know plug and play with almost everything yeah it's it's beautiful yeah and that was part of like i had like a bad taste for using like a linux-based operating system as my main machine but then I took the plunge and everything just worked beautifully. And I'm just a big advocate of it right now. And yeah, everything just works. I put in my Fitbit <laughs> oh, yeah? dongle and it just, just works. That's pretty awesome. It's, it's wicked. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have expected that, to be honest. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, well, um, Reza, I'm really happy to have you on the Vancouver Tech Podcast. And I think we'll probably have to get you back on sometime because this has been really interesting. Yeah. But people are interested in reaching out to you or finding you at meetups. What are some of the meetups you regularly attend? You mentioned, obviously, you run the Docker meetup, and we're really hoping to see some of that in 2017. But what else? And where can we get a hold of you? Are you on any of the local Slack channels like the YVR Dev? I'm on YVR Dev. There's this other one. There's this other uh, Slack channel, 887 GNW, mm -hmm. which is the BC Tech. Okay, 887GNW. Yes. How do you get invited to that? I'm not sure. Okay, we'll have to look that up. Yeah, if, there's a, up. if there's an open way, we'll try and publish a link down below. Yeah, yeah I'm on those ones. I try to attend the Polyglot meetups. I really look at, I always look forward to Polyglot Conf on conference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, every year I take all my developers there. So, and do you, do you uh, attend the Hack Nights or the Reading Group or the Social? No, I would love, I've been meaning to, it's on, it's on my calendar and I feel guilty every time I'm not attending because I have some other engagement or just too busy at work, Yeah, which I want to make an effort of attending those uh, more often. But if anybody wants to reach out, it's Reza, R-E-Z-A at beanworks.com. Very cool. Well, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Vancouver thank Tech you Podcast. So, thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Reza. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vancouver Tech Podcast. Check out our website, vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Rate and subscribe on iTunes. Much appreciated. You can follow us on Twitter, Van Tech Podcast. Feel free to leave some comments below. You can also hit us up on the YVR Dev, the Vancouver Tech, the Van Tech Slacks. I'm at James. And I'm at Drew. Special thanks to Same Room for hooking us up with an integration that allows us to have a cross-team Slack channel, Van Do you have a meetup that you want us to plug? Email us, show at vancouvertechpodcast.ca. Music by A Shell in the Pit from the game Parkitect. See you at one of the meetups around, around town. town.